Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith, and it's Tuesday, which means we are in our Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament series. Now, before we get started, I want to let you guys know about a really cool opportunity we have, and some of you have already heard about it, but it's the Marine Biology Program that's going out in April. Now, why is it special today? Well, because we are offering $100 off for every student that gets their application in and $250 deposit before January 21st. So if you get all of the application documents and a deposit in before January 21st, you will get $100 off of your final tuition cost. So that's only available till January 21st. After that, it, go back, it goes back up to the regular price. So if you want to take advantage of that, you can visit our website at evidenceforfaith.org slash 2022 marine biology, or you can just click on events tab and you'll see it listed right there with the events. Now, as always, this program is supported by listeners just like you. If you would like to donate and help support this program and keep it free, you can do so at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And with that, here is Michael and Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, session six. Welcome back to Evidence for Faith, your host, Michael Lane, uh, here with you in the studio. And this is a continuation of our series that we're doing that I call The Road to Emmaus. It's the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. This is lesson number six. And in this lesson, we're still in the book of Exodus. <laughs> yes, in six lessons, we've covered so many. And we're on number 17 is the actual number of the individual um, prophecies, major prophecies that were covered. And today, as we look at this one, the 17th prophecy, actually, it's going to cover quite a few chapters. It covers Exodus chapter 25 through Exodus chapter 30. Um, this is a part of the Bible that a lot of people, when they start to read their Bibles, um, make a New Year's resolution or something like, I'm going to read my Bible every day or uh, start at the beginning and read it all this year. And they go through Genesis without too much uh, difficulty because there's a lot of interesting stories um, and, and narratives that are going on. And even when you get into the beginning of Exodus, there's quite a few interesting stories and miracles and things that are happening. And it, it holds one's attention very well. But then you get around chapter 25, and that's when people start struggling. And uh, they don't see sometimes the, the real significance of what is found when it starts talking about the structure of the tabernacle. And then after that, you get into Leviticus and you get into the book of Numbers and people just start fading away then and losing that New Year's resolution. Well, in this lesson, number 17, um, Exodus 25 through 30, and I'm calling this the Tabernacle and Jesus. That's the title of this one. So if you've been taking notes, uh, you can follow along and, and jot this one down. This is a 17th prophecy, chapters 25 through 30 of Exodus, the Tabernacle and Jesus. Because this is, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating uh, prophecies. And it's one that's often overlooked. And I'm going to show you something today that's really just going to frost your Wheaties. This is one of the most 
interesting prophecies and how this was set up into the New Testament and how Jesus fulfilled this is it, it just boggles the mind, makes your brain almost want to explode in your skull. And I'm not talking about having a major brain hemorrhage or a stroke, but this is just something amazing that will many people will have to sit and ponder afterwards for a long time because they they just never looked at this set of chapters of the book of Exodus in the uh, prophecies of, of Jesus fulfilling this, that these parts of the tabernacle are so associated with, with not just um, the worship of God, which was the primary thing about this, this tabernacle, but also the tabernacle um, was planned by God for people to get close to God. It helped to, to form a bridge between fallen man and God and as we have seen, Jesus is this, this bridge. He is the mediator, the intercessor um, between fallen man and God. And the thing is, and this is what's so fascinating, the tabernacle illustrates this too. The tabernacle actually is prophecy. The parts of the tabernacle are are things that Jesus fulfills, and it is just amazing. And of course, as most of you know, the tabernacle uh, was replaced by Solomon uh, with the temple, which lasted uh, for a couple hundred years, and then it was destroyed by the Babylonians um, after so many hundreds of years. And then after that, um, uh, there was no temple for a while, and then Zerubbabel uh, came back and um, during the Persian era, was allowed to rebuild the temple. And Herod, when he comes to power, takes Zerubbabel's temple and makes it into this uh, amazing wonder of the ancient world. Um, but it lasted a very short period of time then, and it was then destroyed. And to this day, there is no, no temple on the Temple Mount. But, but the tabernacle setup was basically the same type of setup, the same basic structure as you see in Solomon's temple, as Zerubbabel's temple, and as in Herod's temple, the same structure. Trying to pick, uh, get a picture of this, I don't know if you have an illustration in your Bible that shows you the structure of the tabernacle, but the tabernacle was an amazing structure as it talks about, and I'm just going to give you, uh, just briefly here, just a, a little description of what this is, sort of picture in your mind, if you will, the structure of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle had a fence that went around it, and it's it's basically a big tent, but it had a courtyard made up because it had walls, and it had one opening. There was only one way to come into the presence of God, because God was manifested in, in the Holy of Holies of this thing at the back. But there's only one entrance, thus there is only one way to come to God. Already some of you are probably seeing a similarity between this and Jesus, but as you came into the tabernacle, the first thing that you would come across is the bronze altar. Huge bronze altar sitting right smack dab just beyond uh, inside the entrance when you came in. And then after the bronze altar, there was a bronze laver. Um, a laver is a big bowl, if you will. This thing is huge. Um, it was a large bowl, and it was made of polished bronze, and it was filled with water. The Levites would, would change the water in it and make sure it had fresh water and clean water, and it was used for, for washing and for cleansing. But then, that was in the courtyard. Then you come into a tent, 
inside the courtyard of this tabernacle. And inside the tent, the first thing you're going to come across, once you go through the, the opening, and again, there's just one opening coming into what is called the holy place. One entrance to the holy place. You came in, and immediately what you would see on your right, once you would enter into it, was the, um, the table of showbread. Um, bread was placed on a, a gold table that was there. Now, everything inside of here is gold. And this was a gold table setting on to the right with loaves of bread, 12 loaves of bread set on it. And if you turned uh, 180 degrees, just look right across from where you're standing, on the other side of the holy place, there was the gold lampstand that was there, the lampstand that provided the only light. There's no electricity in this thing. There's no windows or anything. So it would be very dark. Um, it'd be very warm in there, but it'd be very dark. And this lampstand would be the only thing giving light. Then if you, as you've come in, you turn your attention back towards the back of this holy place, you'll see a small altar, little gold altar at the back. And that's the altar of incense. And it is a small altar sitting towards the back of the holy place, just in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies, we talked about this in the last lesson, there was um, the Ark of the Covenant sat there. And the top of the, the lid was called the mercy seat. And that's in the very, very far back. And um, it was separated from the rest. You could come into, as a person would come into the courtyard through the one major opening, just entering into the tabernacle itself, they would be able to easily see, or just look through the entrance, you would see the bronze uh, altar, you'd see the bronze labor, but you could not see inside the holy place or the holy of holies. Priests would come into the holy of uh, uh, into the holy place, and again, you would see three items. There's just three items in there: the table of bread, the lampstand, the altar of incense. And then once a year, the priest was allowed to go beyond the curtain that separated um, the Ark of the Covenant from the other structures in there, and it was on the lid, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, is where God was manifest, and. That's where God's presence was, and people just can't come into that. And priest was only allowed to do it once a year with, with blood being shed and, and other things that you can read about in there. But that's the structure of this building. The point is, uh, that's so important to see here, the Israelites have been moving during the Exodus and have come into the desert. And now they are instructed by God to build a structure for God to come and dwell in their midst. Now, the word tabernacle is the same word in the Hebrew for meaning to dwell, a dwelling, to dwell with. So the tabernacle, we often think of the word tabernacle as a tent. It means dwelling. Why does it mean dwelling? Why did God choose this word for this? Because this is where God came and dwelt among his people. The, all of the tribes of Israel camped all the way around this. They were assigned certain places to camp in relation to the north, south, east, and west of this. The tribe that was right in the front, we covered this in an earlier prophecy also, um, 
that the tribe that camped right across from the opening was the tribe of Judah. So you had to go through the tribe of Judah. Judah had um, covered the opening area of the 12 tribes. They were the ones that was close, closest to the opening. And of course, Jesus, the Messiah, uh, the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. Thus, that's why it was there having to do with prophecy. So, that's the structure of this thing. That's what it means. It's a place for God to come and dwell with his people. And so that's what we're seeing here. And this is a prophecy. Now we're talking about the Messiah. And what's the Messiah going to do? He's going to be God, the Son of God, coming and dwelling with the people. So now you see there's a great similarity here. The tabernacle is where God dwelt with the people. The Messiah is God himself coming and dwelling with the people. So with that, let's take a look now at what this the structure has specifically as we go through this. Um, and if you have, a, like I say, a diagram or just keep this image in your mind, I'll try and draw back to it at times, um, the structure of, the, of the, uh, the tabernacle and the different pieces of furniture. We're going to go through each piece, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, as we go through this and, and let you sort of see how Jesus is the fulfillment that each one of these pieces is representing something having to do with the Messiah. And that's what we'll see. So as we go, let's take a look now at just beginning here. Until the temple was built, the tabernacle, like I say, was the place of worship. Uh, and it strongly showed to the people that they were separated from the holy presence of God. That's why there were so many, uh, the curtain was there, there was walls set up around, there's only one way in, and the thing is, we were separated from the presence of God. People are. The holy place, the most holy, were separated from the common man. In fact, the priests, as I said, could only enter into the Holy of Holies once a year and only under certain conditions on peril of his life. Um, if you wish, you can read Hebrews chapter 9. Um, the writer of the book of Hebrews dwells upon this and, and goes into the importance of this. We don't have time to do that in this lesson here, but you can do that on your own. Just read Hebrews chapter 9 to see more on the structure and, and why this is, um, how important this was. Now, since it was only the high priest who could enter into the presence of God, fallen man's access to God was exclusively through the high priest. Again, the book of Hebrews spends many chapters talking about this, how Jesus is now the superior, the most superior high priest. He's the intercessor between us and God the Father. And the sacrifice of blood foretold because that's how the priest would come in, foretold of the sacrifice of Jesus. And as we all know, Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. He came and gives us forgiveness of sins once and for all. Um, and Jesus is our is the high priest we have today. We don't have the high priest because there's no temple structure today. Jesus is the high priest and the ultimate high priest. Better than any high priest from the descendancy of Aaron, he is much superior to that because instead of using uh, animal blood, he used his own. And he is perfect God, yet he is totally man. So he's the perfect representative for this. Um, but, oh my gosh, there's just so much more to the to the book of um, of Exodus and the tabernacle than, than I can go into here. But if you just read the book of Hebrews, like I say, a large section of the book of Hebrews all deals with this, this prophecy that we're talking about. These, or I should say these prophecies that we're talking about. But... Let's get back to this, to the structure here. Now, as I said, the tabernacle only has one opening. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Um, 
this is what the tabernacle lacked. You see God dwelling among his people and not being separated by them. In the tabernacle, God is separated from the people. Jesus is God in flesh and comes and dwells right with man. So the tabernacle shows how we come to God, and there's only one way. It's through Jesus and through his blood. He's the Passover lamb and stuff. And as John wrote in his book, which he's writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, this is what what is amazing. Are you ready? He is guided by the Holy Spirit to write his gospel, the chapters, and the, the, the pace, uh, the sequence, the chronological order here that we see in the, in the gospel of John. As we go through this, it represents the parts of the tabernacle. So, in John chapter 1, it says, as I said, it says that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling with us. Another way you, way you could say that, the Word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of this as we see this. Now, as I say, John chapter 1. So we're going to look at, we're going to go through John, even though we're doing prophecies of the Old Covenant. We're going through John because John is set up to, to show the prophecies of the tabernacle fitting with Jesus. So in John chapter 1 corresponds to the first structure that you come into uh, upon entering the tabernacle. And what was that? The bronze altar. Here is where the sacrifice of the lamb is performed. In John chapter 1, Jesus becomes flesh. We have the Christmas story in, in that one verse we mentioned uh, already, verse 14. Here's the whole Christmas story. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. So that's the Christmas story in the book of John. So John says that Jesus became flesh and he is um, living then among us, with us, um, and makes himself available to be our sacrificial lamb. In other words, God becomes flesh. Uh, Jesus also is the Lamb of God. We see that right away in John. Uh, John the Baptist declares to his disciples, there, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he is the Lamb. When you came into the tabernacle and during the days of the Exodus, you carried in a Lamb. You would do this to cover your sins. So John chapter 1 is showing that Jesus is the Lamb of God and he is coming to dwell with us. John chapter 2 through chapter 5, now we come to the next part. The bronze altar is where the blood was sacrificed. Um, the Lamb of God would be sacrificed there. Jesus is the Lamb of God. So that's the bronze altar. The next four chapters, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5 of John's gospel corresponds to the second structure that you would encounter in coming into the tabernacle to come into access of God. And this is the bronze laver. And now this is talked about in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. It's giving the description of this. But look at how John describes this. Here John prepares for us worship and shows that Jesus came to offer us the water of life. Yes. Take a look. If you just scan, if you have a Bible with you, scan over it, just open up to John chapter 2, and you're going to start seeing some things. Now, look at how many times, because what's in the bronze all uh, labor? What's in this, this cleansing bowl? Water. So, John chapter 2, water is going to be a principal topic. John chapter 3, you're going to see water. Chapter 4, you're going to see water. Chapter 5, you're going to see water. 
Look at this. This is amazing. Because in John chapter 2, we're now at the second part of the tabernacle. Um, we have the miracle of water into wine. Um, talking about preparing for true worship. About cleansing. John talks about cleansing our hearts. And just then also you see Jesus cleansing the temple. What is the water for? Cleansing. So you see this whole thing in John chapter 2 dealing with cleansing and dealing with water often. You get to the next one, chapter 3 of John. And here you have the famous discussion uh, with Nicodemus. And in here Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water. So again, water is mentioned. And we, we have this talked about here, being born of, of spirit and of water. And we see these things again occurring. And also, what did you see in chapter 3? Baptisms. If you scan down, you'll read the latter part of that chapter. And we have John baptizing with water and stuff. So we see water, again, being emphasized. Then you go to John chapter 4. What do we see here? Well, of course, you start the chapter 4 of John. You come across the woman at the well. What's in the well? Water. Jesus shows us here, as he's talking to the woman, he shows her and us how to quench our thirst for God. Remember, coming into the tabernacle, you're coming into the access of God. Here, Jesus is our priest, and so here we're seeing how do we come into the presence of God, and how do we get our thirst quenched for God? And John talks about this in, in this beautiful passage, probably the best passage in the entire Bible on how to worship. What worship is, is the woman at the well story. And we have a lesson that we'll be doing on that uh, sometime in the, in the future. Then you get to John chapter 5. Do you know what? It also deals with water. What's going on? This is where Jesus heals the lame man by the pool of water. So we keep seeing emphasis of water. So John chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, water keeps being mentioned. And as you came into the tabernacle, water was the second structure. Now, once we're, we leave that, we, we leave the courtyard, now we come to the holy place, we enter through the curtain opening here, and as I said, we come to the third structure of the tabernacle. What is this? This is the table of showbread. So John, just following in sequence, this is going to be John chapter 6 and 7. It corresponds to the showbread, which sat on the table. Its other name is called the bread of the presence of God. Remember, what's in the back of this place is where God was manifest. It shows us, by representing bread here, uh, what these 12 loaves represented was the fruits of our labor. Um, in, in working the fields and getting grain to make bread and stuff, this shows and represents the fruits of our labor, what people accomplish. And it comes from God. It's in the holy place. He blesses the nation with sustenance. And why are there 12 loaves? Well, it's quite simple. There's 12 major tribes. So we have the 12 um, loaves. Each loaf is represented, uh, representing one of the tribes. When one entered the holy place of the tabernacle, one just sees this bread table sitting here. Priests were allowed to eat this, uh, and this bread would sit there, and it's the bread of the presence of God. So when you would look at this, you'd know God is present, but everything that we gain, everything that we, we work for and stuff, it comes from God. That's what this represents. Um, upon, um, well, the next two chapters of, of John actually 
talks about this because now what is Jesus going to refer to in John chapter 6 and John chapter 7? But bread. Take a look at John chapter 6 for a second. You're going to see here right away, you're going to have the feeding of the 5,000. Now, Jesus, as Moses did earlier, feeds the people with bread. Moses, obviously, with manna. Actually, it was God doing it, but Moses is the way they viewed it. Moses fed them with manna, which is a type of something like bread. Jesus actually takes loaves and and feeds the people, 5,000 people, with bread. So it's Jesus actually giving the gift. Jesus speaks directly to the people concerning this. He says in John chapter 6, I tell you the truth. It's not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Go on a little further, and he actually just comes out and says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Now, of course, he's not speaking of physical hunger, spiritual, Um, though the people often got Jesus's spiritual messages mixed up with the physical. But Jesus made it very plain to the people that where the bread came from, it came from God in Moses' days. Moses was the distributor, but it came from God. And now Jesus himself, being God, actually feeds the people. So you see there's a similarity here with the tabernacle and this miracle. Uh, Many Israelites expected, and this is because of a prophecy we're going to see later on, um, they expected that the Messiah would be like Moses in a lot of ways. And Jesus uses this miracle to simulate the manna from heaven story with Moses, which the people were all familiar with. But he also makes it plain that he is indeed the Messiah. He is the one, the Messiah. He is the one greater than Moses, he goes on to say. One greater than Moses is here. He is greater than Moses. So this entire chapter, chapter 6 of John, is dedicated to the topic that Jesus is the bread from heaven. People who ate the manna, they got hungry again. But Jesus can satisfy our spiritual hunger. That's John chapter 6. But you know something? The next chapter, chapter 7, also deals with the bread of heaven. Um, and this is where Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacle. John is describing Jesus going there. He confronts those Jewish leaders during this Feast of the Tabernacle. And what was one of the major things that were eaten at the Feast of the Tabernacle? Bread. So bread is an emphasis through chapter 7 also. So that was the third part of the Tabernacle. Bread, the show bread, the bread of presence of God. Now we come to the next structure. As I said, you turn around, As you're standing there facing the table of showbread, you turn around and look on the other side of the tabernacle in the holy place, and you see the lampstand. Now, it's just interesting that John 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, the next five chapters of John, is specifically talking about light. That's the theme running through these five chapters of John, just like it would be the next thing inside the tabernacle. Now, the holy place of the tabernacle... um, had this lampstand. And in this room, as I said, it was very dark. Even on a bright day, it's going to be dark in there because of the animal skins and the cloth and stuff that covered this this place. Little light could penetrate through it. Thus, God told Moses to make a lampstand, a specific lampstand. Beside its common function to bring light to the holy place, it also served as a symbol of the light of God in a dark world. 
if you snuffed out the lights of the lampstand, you're in pitch darkness. But if they're lit, they represent the light of God removing the darkness. Jesus uses this comparison to himself. In John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the true light. If we follow him, we'll never stumble in darkness, for he lights our path for us to see how to live. He also removes the darkness of sin from our lives. As the Israelites used the lampstand to see in the darkness of the tabernacle because they removed it, we need to look to Jesus to light our path in the dark world of sin that we inhabit. Go to the next chapter in John, chapter 9. Guess what you see Jesus saying? Verse 5, I am the light of the world. Again, Jesus heals the blind man in this part here. Now, the blind man. What did the blind man see before he was healed? Darkness. What does a blind person see? Darkness. So the blind man is in darkness from birth. Just like from birth, we are in a sinful situation. We live in sin. And Jesus healed the man from the physical darkness. We can be assured he can heal us of our spiritual darkness. I mean, look at verses of chapter 9, verses 39 through 41. Follow what Jesus says. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Again, it's talking about sinful nature, the sinful world in darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world who shines light and shows what is sin. And that's just, it's amazing to me as we see this. But let's go to the next chapter, chapter 10 of John. What do we see? It's actually a continuation of the same lesson. Um, this is, uh, they've, they've made a new chapter here uh, later on, centuries later, that when they put the chapters in the Bible for moving through the Bible, navigating it easily, they actually divided up this, this long lesson that Jesus is teaching. And so John chapter 10 is actually a continuation of the teachings of Jesus on spiritual darkness. The spiritual blindness, which he started in chapter 9. So it's a continuation. Guess what? Go to the next chapter. We go to John chapter 11. Oh my gosh, John chapter 11. One of my favorite chapters in the book of John, because what is it? You have the miracle of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. I mean, wow, what an amazing miracle this was. One of the, one of the greatest miracles Jesus ever did by healing a man who had been dead for four days um, and brings him back to life. But I want, you to, I want to draw your attention to verses 9 and 10 of John 11. Again, in reference to the structure of the tabernacle, it says, And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What are we seeing? Jesus is again making a reference of being the light of the world. Spiritual blindness can, can be overcome by Jesus alone. And move right now to, to um, chapter 12. And in chapter 12, if, if you see in chapter 12, verses 35, 36, um, it says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. 
Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And if you just move down a couple of verses to verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So Jesus refers to himself again as the light of the world. Anyone who believes in him will not stay in spiritual darkness. Isn't that fascinating? All these sections having to do with light. But now we come to the next structure of the tabernacle, the fifth one. And this is right in the back of the holy place, right up near the curtain uh, that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And in Exodus 30, we see the description of the ark, or I'm sorry, the altar of incense. So the altar of incense. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus? Um, an altar of incense. I don't remember Jesus ever burning incense and stuff. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, you have to understand what incense is symbolic of. And to find that, you go to the book of Psalm, Psalm 141, verse 2. It's, the writer writes, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. Incense with the wafting of the smoke, the beautiful smell and stuff that rises up to, you know, like rising up to where God would be, etc. Of course, he's everywhere, but uh, symbolically, we're just speaking here. Prayer is like that. We say a prayer, it goes to the Father. Incense in the ancient time was representative of prayers. And so incense, it has a fragrance, an aroma that is pleasing to most men. And it's obviously, because God says so, it, it pleases God too. I mean, you just walk into some store that sells incense and they have it burning in the store. I mean, you just walk in. You don't have to see the incense. Matter of fact, just getting close to the doorway, maybe even standing outside the store, you can smell the incense, depending upon what it's made of. Many of them have a sweetness to them as it, as it burns and gives off little um, wisps of smoke as it goes upward. This fragrance reminds people that God is like the air everywhere. You walk in there, even though you don't see the incense, you can smell it. You walk, um, there was a, a mall that um, I used to live near, and it had a store that sold incense, and they always burned incense in there. And I, as I would walk down the mall, just starting to walk down, you know, one of the long hallways of how malls were set up, you could start to smell the store even before you got, you know, several meters uh, from it, you could still smell the store. And as you came to the opening, it was very powerful and you walk inside, it's like overwhelming. Well, that's how God is. The fragrance of God is, is like that. His, the presence of God overwhelms. You don't have to see it to know it's there. That's what's so cool. It's everywhere. God is in the midst. The fragrance of the incense is in the midst. But more importantly than that, the prayers were offered up to God to gain his attention. You see, they allow us to speak with the Almighty God. Prayer, that's all it is. A person just recently asked me, they said, you know, I don't know how I'm supposed to pray. What kind of words, what kind of phrases I'm supposed to use? My simple reply to him was, just like you're talking to me, you talk to God. That's prayer. You just talk to God. Do it silently. Do it audibly. You just talk to God. That's what prayer is. 
and you just talk to him like he's there all the time because you know something? He is there all the time. You don't have to go to a special place. You don't have to go to a church building. You don't have to go to a tabernacle or a temple to talk to God. Like incense fills a room. You can't see it. You can smell it. He is everywhere. And it's just talking to him. So incense with prayer actually is a form of an intercessor for reaching to the Father God. And the altar of incense was placed, notice where it's placed, as close to the holy place where God was manifest that you get, could get to. Daily, it was the closest place, one of the priests, the closest a priest could come to the actual presence of manifestation of God, which was the Ark of the, the Covenant, the mercy seat there. This was the closest they could come. What's the closest we can come to God? Well, God lives inside of us, yes. If you're a born-again Christian, he puts his spirit inside of us. We're now the tabernacle. We're now the temple of God. But in talking with God, there's a direct communication here. And in communication, there's a bond in communicating back and forth talking that is amazing. And, and prayer is our intercessor, um, intercessing with God. We talk to God. We tell him what we we feel, what we, we need. Too often, we just give him a shopping list. Uh, I challenge you, go to God in prayer this year and just say, maybe right now, just say, God, what can I do for you? I know, God, you don't need anything. There's nothing that I can do that, that will help your existence. No, but you've put certain gifts inside of me, certain talents inside of me, and placed me in a, uh, in a, um, here in, in the time span that I'm at and around all these people. What can I do for you? So don't make prayer a shopping list. Try and find a way to let God use you. So, it was the closest they could get to the most holy place. The closest man could get to the presence of God. And it represented an intercessor to God for man. Now, let's go back to John now. In John chapter 13, verse 20, we see that Jesus is our intercessor. So we see, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You notice there's a bond here, a me and you type thing, just like in prayer. And it's an intercessor. John chapter 14, the next chapter, this entire chapter uh, speaks of Jesus as being our intercessor to the Father. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only intercessor to holy God. You do not need to go to another person. You do not need to go to some spiritual leader to talk to God. You can talk to God at any time because of what Jesus has done. So, you come to the Father through Jesus. John chapter 15 this chapter is a continuation from that last part. It speaks directly of gaining access to the Father. Look at verse 16 of John chapter 15. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, may he give it to you. Now, right there, you can see, here's the one-on-one -on -one bonding here in communicating. But 
Now we can go directly to the Father. Now, I should point out, this is not for a shopping list. Like, okay, God, I would really like to have a new card. So if I pray this in Jesus' name, I'm going to get it. That is not what that verse is saying. Though a lot of people teach that sometimes. That's not what it's saying. This means that whatever you ask the Father in the name of Jesus, that goes along with the character of Jesus and with what God's goals are, he will give it to you. So if you need something along that line that is in the will of the Father, you ask in Jesus' name, Father, I need this for your will to be accomplished here, okay. I mean, God does this frequently. I'm sitting in a studio that I never thought would exist in in my house where I'm actually living. And we're downstairs in the basement. Maybe you've seen on our website pictures of this studio, and we needed equipment. And God supplied. I needed expert opinion. God supplied. Because I kept asking, okay, Father, how do I do this? I don't know anything about electronics. I have very little knowledge. I took a couple of electronics courses in high school. Um, don't have a lot of experience with that. I don't know. Computer mumbo jumbo, that is not my forte. Um, I know how to turn on a computer, how to turn it off, and really how to mess them up well. Um, I can do that kind of thing. I can use a word processor. I can use PowerPoints, and I can use an Excel sheet. But how the, I, I just don't understand all the complexities and all the different uh, modern things that are going on, the newest technologies of computers. It's way beyond me. I can't figure it out. I usually have to get a, you know, one of my daughters that, okay, how do I do this with my phone because I can't figure it out? Or how do I get this on the computer? Or I'll ask Charlotte, Charlotte, I just did this. I don't know what I did to the computer. Can you come fix it? So, but the thing is, there were, God put into this ministry people that were perfect for getting this thing started to fulfill his will of getting the word of God out through these podcasts, through video lessons, and also through me traveling and speaking individually to groups. So we asked in the Father's name. It was within his will, his desire, and he granted it just like he promised he would. And John chapter 16, let's get to the next one. Um, this is a continuation of, for the last two. Now, I want to read um, chapters 23 through 28. And it says in John chapter 16, starting at verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, I, will, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now that I am leaving the world, and going to the Father. So again, it's talking about this intercessor. Jesus is an intercessor. Look at the next chapter, chapter 17. We're going to see Jesus praying. Remember, this altar here, the altar of incense, is about prayer. In chapter 17, we see Jesus praying for his disciples. I mean, how more obvious can this be? He's already begun the job of being the intercessor. Right here, he starts praying. Praying for what? In verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for the future believers, not just to the disciples sitting in the room with him. He's talking about us who are born again born from above. Look at verse, starting at verse 20, we'll go through 26, and look at this. I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you love me. Love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Talk about an intercessor. Jesus praying to the, his Father specifically for us. Wow. And we know from Romans chapter 8, the, um, the Holy Spirit continues to take our prayers and make them to the Father. But Jesus made this all possible. He is our intercessor. So that's the altar of incense. Now, we cross the curtain, the barrier, in the tabernacle, and we come into the holy of holies, the most holy place. And here is where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat actually sit. Um, and now we've already covered this actually in prophecy just before this in the last lesson. The Ark of the Covenant was discussed when we did Exodus 25 and dealing with the atonement cover. Uh, this was an area for the blood of the sacrifice to be poured out upon. Compare this to John chapter 18 and 19. Look at John 18 and 19. What do we see? This is Jesus' crucifixion, right? It is uh, scourging and crucifixion when he is actually doing what? Bleeding. So the tabernacle, this structure here, deals with blood. And now in John's gospel, Jesus is shedding his blood. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus to do what? To seal the new covenant. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. In these two chapters, John, an eyewitness to the event, describes how Jesus' blood was poured out for all fallen men to span the gap between them and the Father God. And if you recall how the story goes, when Jesus did this and died, the curtain rent in two. It was open all the way through. We now have access to the Father. How cool is that? Then we get to um, the last part, the mercy seat, and that's where the glow of God was. In Exodus chapter 25, it actually specific, uh, actually talks about the glow of God. Again, we discussed this earlier in the last lesson, talking about the cover of the Ark of the Covenant that was special because God's presence would appear there in a cloud. That was, uh, and we also see this, and we're going to see it in the next prophecy or next book coming up, Leviticus, in chapter 16, verse 2, it says, For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. God's presence is there. This cloud of God would show his reconciliation with man. If God is not reconciled with man, he would not appear there. Um, so what do we see now? In John chapter 20 and 21, this is that part. And in John chapter 20, in the same way, when Jesus was resurrected, it proves that he was reconciled with man. He came back to dwell again with men. A short period of time compared to the longer span of his ministry, but he came and reconciled with man. He actually forgives Peter 
uh, for the denial. Look at verse 17, for instance. I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus provides reconciliation to God, our Father. I mean, it's, it's so plain. To my God, your God. Then you get to chapter 21 um, of John, and we see, again, this is dealing with this part because Jesus is alive. He is resurrected. He is manifested. You can see him. The people do. And he lives today. Jesus is not dead. He is alive today. And he is with us today. That is a comforting thought. As we approach uh, um, year after year goes on and each day people wake up in the morning and some people I know are afraid to even get out of bed, um, afraid to, to start the day or fearful of what it's going to bring, we don't have to be that way. Uh, I believe it was Chuck Swindoll in one of his sermons, I don't remember which one, or one of the books I read of his, he says um, that something that he often um, reminds himself of, and I love this. I wrote this down when I first heard this, and I had this written on a a board I attached um, right in front of me in my desk when I used to work, and it says this, nothing will happen to me today that first does not pass through the fingers of God. That's a great statement. Nothing will happen to me today that first does not pass through the fingers of God. What a great prophecy this was. How Jesus and the tabernacle are so similar. The tabernacle structure isn't just a building. It's just not structures. They were symbolic of who the Messiah is going to be and what the Messiah was going to do. That's why I love this part having to do with the tabernacle. It is an amazing structure um, with all of its prophecies and stuff dealing with all of this. And I hope you will spend some time studying that passage in in, uh, Hebrews. Um, Take a look at Hebrews when you get, get a chance because it is absolutely amazing what we see in this this gospel. or not this gospel, but this epistle that we see, um, how Jesus is is poured out um, and, and, and just the amazing parts of how Jesus parallels the structure of this building. It's not made by accident. There was nothing in Egypt that, um, I've heard many people say that Moses built the tabernacle based upon the Egyptians, gods, and things like this. Well, that's so corny because there is no image of God anywhere around here. Uh, Some of the architecture, some of the drawings and stuff might have some uh, symbolic part having to do with some structures in in Egypt. Egypt, they use gold. The tabernacle is made of gold. But God had a specific thing. And it talks about that there's, um, that God designed this thing. And Moses put it together. Um, Didn't have hieroglyphics written all over it. No, it was not like that. It's, It's different. So, I hope you enjoyed this lesson as we have finished off now um, this glow of God that we've talked about. And Jesus is alive today. He is with us even today. And as we go into the next lesson, number um, 
uh, uh, le, uh, the prophecy, which will be number 18, we start the book of Leviticus. So we have finished the book of Exodus now, and we'll be moving into Leviticus next. And I want to thank you so much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this and have learned some things from this. And I ask that, uh, that God would bless you as you explore this. And again, we would love to hear from you for our ministry. We'd love to um, hear if you have any comments or concerns. Um, we need some prayer. Please contact us. And uh, Charlotte, who works with us, uh, or myself, um, we will try and get back to you as soon as we possibly can. And again, thank you. May God bless. And until we meet again, take care. God bless you. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.